I'd like to begin a series today of five messages which will deal with the topics of sin today, judgment the following Sunday, atonement, the work of Christ the Sunday after that, life in the Spirit the Sunday after that, and our blessed hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus the Sunday after that, which will bring us to the weekend of joy on September 28th, in which that will be the subject, and following that will be the celebration of education. I hope you all return for those messages. Today, I want to talk about the topic which you saw in the morning text from Romans 14:23: whatever is not from faith is sin. The Old Testament and the New Testament agree on this. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. That's Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and Paul quotes it in Romans 4. But, therefore, by implication, the Old Testament and the New Testament agree that the man whose transgressions are not forgiven whose sin is not covered, and against whom the Lord does hold his iniquity, is not blessed and is in very great trouble. And even if in this age the unrepentant sinner looks as if he is prospering, we have it on the authority of the word of God, he cannot escape the judgment of God. Romans 2, 4, and 5. Do you presume upon the kindness and forbearance of God and his patience? Do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, but by your hard and unrepentant heart you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God? That's the warning that comes from Scripture if we have not been forgiven our sin. And if this is true, and if our imaginations can only begin to think of what the horror of the wrath of the Almighty Creator would be, then surely it is the most important thing for any individual in this church or in the world to find a way to have his sins forgiven. But one of the characteristics of sin is deception. According to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, this is true of sin. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All sin has a lie at its heart. And the lie of sin to us in our sin is this. The act you're now doing, or the attitude or emotion that you are now feeling, is not very bad. Because there are much worse things in the world that could be done. It's not very bad because everyone experiences those sorts of things. It's not very bad because you can't help it. It's not very bad because 
there is no God, or if that won't work, as it usually won't in our land or in Africa especially, as I've been reading, then Satan simply says, well, the God that is, is a very tolerant and lenient God and won't bother punishing you for your sin. There are a thousand distortions to the truth that Satan brings to the human heart, which is why Jeremiah cried out, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Sometimes I despair at the subtlety of sin in my own heart. The subtlety of sin to distort the way I see reality or to blind me to the truth or to spark in me all kinds of unreasonable and stupid desires and inclinations. And then when I look away from my own heart to my little world in Elliott Park and see the thievery and the drunkenness and the sexual promiscuity and then look outside my little world into the broader world, for example, of Garcia Meza's Bolivia and the horrible stories of tortures that are coming back from that regime or all the Gary Hastings in America who slay their wives and then try to blow their brains out with a shotgun and fail, leaving themselves with no face as a kind of symbolic statement of the ravages of sin. When I look at the subtlety of sin in my own life and then the iron-clad grip it has on our world, I sometimes despair at how, how, God, can I help people's eyes to be open to the grievousness of sin and feel it in our own lives since it's so deceitful. But then I remember a text. And you all know the text from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of bones and marrow, spirit and soul, and revealing and discerning the intentions of the heart. And before Him, no creature is hidden, but we are all open and laid bare before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And then I take heart. That perhaps if I preach a sermon based on the word of God, maybe, maybe the deceptiveness of sin can be overcome and we can see sin for what it really is. The word blows away the fog of deception, doesn't it? So that we can see our sin, not just his or hers, but our sin. That's what I'm concerned about. And as I said in the prayer, not that we may wallow in it, but that we may flee from it. Therefore, my goal this morning is that we might, on the basis of the Word of God, see what sin is and why it's sin. Seldom is there a cure for any disease without a diagnosis, and that's what I want to give. God's diagnosis to the human disease of sin, because every one of us is sick with it. He came to the sick, not to those who are well. If we can find out what sin is and feel in our hearts what sin is, then we can escape from it. But if we don't know what it is, it will maintain its grip upon us. So I hope you listen very, very carefully. Now, if you're not already there, I'd like you to turn to Romans 14, where I have chosen to find my text. 
I find in Romans 14, verse 23, the most devastating and the most penetrating definition of sin that I know of in the Bible. The reason it's penetrating is because it goes straight to the root of sin, namely the root of our failure to trust God. And the reason it is devastating is because it wipes away all of our silly little lists of do's and don'ts as if we can define sin in some manageable category of sorts of actions. According to this text, which says in the last half of the verse, whatever is not from faith is sin. Preaching can be sin. House painting can be sin. Anything can be sin. And the original language even puts it more strongly. In the Greek it says everything, not just whatever, but everything which is not from faith is sin. Now, let's get the context before us here in this chapter. In Romans 14, Paul is addressing a situation in which some believers thought it was wrong to eat meat. They were vegetarians. Others thought it was right to eat anything. And they did. Some were teetotalers. Others thought it was wrong to drink wine. Now, Paul agrees with those who think that in itself, nothing is impure. But something was vastly more important to Paul than getting those Roman believers to eat meat or to drink wine. And it was this. He wanted them to do nothing that did not come from love or from faith. Look at verses 2 and 3 in the chapter. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. Then drop down to verses 14 and 15. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And then down to verse 21. It is right not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. Now, what Paul is doing here is redefining sin for these Roman believers. Sin cannot properly be de defined in terms of mere acts of eating or drinking. It has to be defined by its root. Where does the act come from? That's what makes it sin. The act of eating meat may be sin, but it may not. The act of drinking may be sin, but it may not, depending on the situation. There is a deeper root of sin even than love. He says if you're doing anything that injures a brother, you're not walking in love, as if to say anything that doesn't accord from love is sin. But then he goes even further because below love and enabling love, there is faith. Look at verses 22 and 23. 
Do you have faith? Keep it to yourself before God. Or, if you have faith, keep it to yourself before God. Now, I think what Paul means there is that if your faith is strong enough so that it frees you from the guilt of eating meat, for example, in the situation at Rome, don't think you have to flaunt that freedom on everybody. Keep it to yourself if it's going to injure anybody to exercise the freedom of your faith. Then he goes on to say, Blessed is the person who does not judge himself for what he approves. In other words, it is a tremendous joy to have a clean conscience, isn't it? Not to pass sentence on ourselves because we are doubtful about what we're now doing as to whether it will be injurious or harmful to somebody. Then he concludes with these words. The person who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not act from faith. Everything which is not from faith is sin. Now, what Paul is saying here, I think, is that if you're not sure that the act that you're about to perform is wrong, and nevertheless you go ahead and risk that wrong or that injury, then you are sinning. And the reason he gives is that such eating, if it's eating meat, is not from faith. Because whatever is not from faith is sin. Now the assumption here, listen to this carefully, the assumption here is that to go ahead and eat meat, for example, seemingly innocent, to go ahead and eat meat, when you think it may be wrong or harmful, is an eating which does not come from faith. That's the assumption. If you eat meat when you think it's wrong, your action is not coming from faith. Why is that? Why can't such eating be from faith? Now, that's a key question, because if we can answer that question, I think we will have an insight into what Paul means by faith here. And if we know what faith is, then we'll have a better insight into what sin is, because sin is what doesn't come from that. Why is it then that we are not acting from faith when we go ahead and do something which we think, but are not sure, might be wrong? I think the answer jumps out at us if we ask another question, namely this one. Why, why do we go ahead and do that sort of thing when we think that, well, maybe somebody would be hurt by this, or maybe it's wrong, and we go ahead and do it anyway? Why? I think the answer is this. We do what we do because we think it will make us happier. It will make life more bearable or more livable. The action that we're entertaining, we weigh in our minds, not to do it or to do it. On the not do it side is the criterion, well, it's, it might be wrong or it might hurt somebody. On the do it side is, if I don't do it, my life won't be nearly as happy. And we follow that instead of the other. And when we do that, doesn't it start to become clear why such behavior is not from faith? What would faith do? Faith looks at the action and says someone might be injured or it might be wrong. And faith does not feel that strong inclination to do it to make our future happier because faith rests in God to construct a future for us vastly better 
than we could construct for ourselves on our own unaided efforts. So it's obvious to me that when we try to make our future happier by going ahead and doing a thing which we think might be sin, we are not acting from faith because faith trusts in God to shape a better future for us than we could shape for ourselves. Now, I think we're ready to get a a glimpse of what Paul means by faith. This is so crucial because if we don't understand what faith is, we really won't understand how prevalent sin is in the world. Here's what I think comes from verse 23 as a definition for faith. Faith is confidence in God to work in the affairs of our lives to make sure that nothing happens to us that isn't best for us. Faith is confidence in God to work in the nitty-gritty affairs of our lives so that nothing happens to us which is not best for us. And I tell you, that is a liberating faith from day to day. What a power would be unleashed if we really believed that Almighty God, whose counsel cannot be frustrated, this very minute while I preach, is out there working in the affairs of your lives so that this very afternoon and tomorrow morning at the office, nothing is going to happen to you but what is best for you. Oh, if you believed that, you would have unbelievable peace, wouldn't you? But it's true. Therefore, let's believe it. But now there's a grave error that I have to warn against here, which I think threatens that glorious truth. The error is this, and it sounds good at first. The error is that in the church today, there are so many who stress that the essence of saving faith is the, the backward look to the cross to believe God for forgiveness. That is, to trust God not to do anything bad to us, but to forgive our sins. And that's true. Without that, we'd have no hope. But, in fact, something is lost when that's stressed to the exclusion of the future orientation of faith. In the New Testament, we see that an essential, not a peripheral, but an essential dimension of faith is the look forward to what God will do for us, not just what He won't do to us. God is at work in our lives to make sure that all things good come to us. You know Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His only Son, there's the backward glance, back 2,000 years to the death of Jesus. He who did not spare His only Son but freely gave Him up for us all, will He not then freely with Him give us all things? And that all things doesn't just mean heavenly things. It means whatever is best for us in the here and now as well, including, incidentally, as you know I must say from last Sunday, tribulations. Which is why Paul said in Romans 5, 2, let's rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience or character and that hope. Saving faith is primarily future-oriented. So we must trust God that He is at work now 
in all those nitty-gritty affairs of our lives so that worrisome situation that you're thinking about tomorrow or Wednesday or Friday, He is at work and He's God and we'll take care of it if we rest in Him. Now, Abraham, according to Romans 4, was justified by faith, right? And Abraham is set up for us as the model of our Christian faith. But what was faith for Abraham? Paul said in Romans 4.20, He did not doubt the promise of God in unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Saving faith is resting in the promises of God. What promises? Hundreds of promises. Probably summing them all up is Romans 8:28. God will work everything together for the good of those who love him. Or others like the one at the end of Psalm 23, he will follow or pursue you with goodness and mercy all your life. Or the one in Hebrews 13, we shouldn't be afraid because he will never forsake us. Whom then shall we fear? You have tremendous peace and joy if you have saving faith, which is why Paul said in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope, hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Trusting God, the God of hope, gives joy and peace precisely because it means being confident that he is now at work in the affairs of our lives to see to it that nothing happens to us but what is best for us. Now, moving back to Romans 14, 23. This is what lies behind that verse. Sin is anything that does not flow from that sort of confidence in the God of hope, that doesn't sprout in the soil of that assurance. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And now there are three implications here at the end that I want to drive home that this verse has. First, the all-pervasive fault and offensiveness of sin is its character of unbelief. Now let there be no confusion here. By unbelief, I, I don't mean the refusal to assent to the truth of the promises. There are loads of people who with their heads are assenting to the truth of Scripture and are not saved. They do not have saving faith because saving faith is not assenting with the head merely but staking the hope of the heart on those promises. So that it makes a difference in our lives. Unbelief is what mainly displeases God, therefore, in every sinful act. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And rightly so, isn't it? If you have a friend, and your friend makes you a promise, and then says to you, By my honor, I will see that favor through. And you scratch your chin and say, well, you know, I've given it some thought and I, I've come to the conclusion that I just don't think 
you can be trusted anymore. Now, the friendship is over. You have so badly insulted him and robbed him of his honor that he has a legitimate cause for animosity against you. And consider this. The offensiveness of your insult to him rises in proportion to the degree of his dignity. In other words, the more wise and the more honorable and the more dependable that friend is, the more inexcusable and the more awful your refusal to trust him is. That makes it very easy for me to begin to feel the loathsomeness and the grievousness of sin before God. Doesn't it you? There is nobody more honorable, more dependable, more dignified, more worthy to be trusted than Almighty God. And when we do not rest in His promises, what we are saying to God is, I don't think your promises are worth trusting or the future that you can provide for me is worth delighting in. And that is an infinite sin, which is why I'm going to talk about judgment next week. A failure to delight and trust in the promises of God is the greatest insult that you can pay to God and therefore the primary offense in all sin. Second implication from Romans 14, 23. We can no longer, no longer view sin as a list of do's and don'ts. Everything that is not from faith is sin. Coming to church may be sin. And staying home may be sin. Eating steak may be sin. And not eating may be sin. Sexual intercourse with your wife or your husband may be sin. And the refusal of those sexual relations may be sin. One of Satan's most successful and devastating lies in the church is that sins can be limited to a manageable list of do's and don'ts. And the reason it's so satanic is that he gives the impression to churchgoers that God is pleased with them and that everything's okay so long as they're keeping this little teeny list of do's and avoiding this long list of don'ts while all the day long they might be sinning because everything they do does not flow from a happy confidence in the promises of God. It's a devastating verse to us and will not allow that we limit sin to a little list of do's and don'ts. And don't get the impression, please, that Paul thinks it can't happen in the church. Only out there. He wrote to the church at Thessalonica, When I could bear it no longer, I sent that I might know your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter, Satan, had tempted you and that my labor might be in vain. Among churchgoers, Satan's number one priority, and he's trying it on every one of us, is to replace vital, spiritual, heart faith with mere upstanding morality. 
And when he's done that, he has devastated the church or an individual. He loves to take a life that's flowing from happy confidence in God and turn it into a perfunctory performance of a religious regimen. Church, church, Bible reading, prayer, all of that can just be sin if it doesn't flow from faith, which means that the real battle of the Christian life doesn't happen down there low at the delta where the rivers of our inclinations flow into the ocean of action. The real battle is way up there in the high reaches of the Himalayas at the spring of faith. Because it doesn't matter where that river flows. If it didn't start in the spring of faith, it's going to wind up in sin. No matter what the list is that we try to keep. And that is a fearful thought and one that should send us to the Proverbs and hear him say, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Finally, the third implication. This is a warning to those, and surely in a crowd this large, there must be some, who have never entrusted themselves to Christ for forgiveness or received his provision of forgiveness in the cross. This is the warning. Such people must not, must not say to themselves, well, I don't sin much or my sins are not very bad. Because if I understand the implications of Romans 14.23, all you can do is sin. Everything that is not from faith is sin. Even the most noble of your actions. And my prayer as we close this morning, first of all would be this. If anybody walks out of here today unbelieving, I pray that God will not let escape from your mind this thought. That everything you do from morning till night this week is sin. Everything. And live in that fearful prospect. But I have a better suggestion. And it's this. Why not begin the week with no condemnation? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul said in Romans 5. 